My name is Kim Weeks, and this is the Weeks Well. One thing that I took away from my conversation with Patty Townsend is a dead ringer for something I took away from my talk with Jillian Pransky last week. In fact, I almost named these two episodes, part one and part two, because of this intersection, which is something I've heard threaded through the podcast conversation so far, but not back to back and with such clarity. They both talked about how that what's driving them in their teachings, what they've received most profoundly and what they want to give is friendship. So about Patty, she began practicing yoga in Los Angeles and was influenced by Ganga White, Richard Freeman, and most profoundly, as we discuss in our conversation here, a woman named Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. I'd heard of Cohen before, and I wonder if some of you also have, but it wasn't until I really delved into Bonnie's um, about page that I appreciated with such depth how Patty is a devotee. I know that many of you are as curious as I am about where people come from, you know, what motivates them to move and to dive into a contemplative practice like yoga and why they teach it. So I really do invite you to visit um, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen's page to learn about her teachers that have, I'm telling you, spanned the globe. It was amazing reading how many different people she studied with all over the world. She's interested in every type of healthy, holistic movement that you can imagine. So back to Patty and back to this concept of friendship. It was such a delight hearing about her early days with Ashtanga and then Iyengar. There's some really cool stories in there. Um, interesting stories, deep stories, and then Tantra and these three teachers that I've just mentioned, which leads back to this friendship piece. What I learned from Patty is that she thinks about the yoga practice and the relationship with the body as about a friendship with it, a friendship with the fundamental energies that she describes throughout the podcast, we're channeling all the time. We're discovering and channeling and amplifying, if you will, and bringing up to the surface of consciousness. You know, she talks about how she learned pretty early in her yoga career that there's just co-creation and learning and more learning. And probably most of all, as she puts it, practice that's not on the mat, but in the dishes and with the children. I hope you enjoy this next conversation here on the Weeks Well with yet another maturing great teacher who, in this case, has crisscrossed lineages to profound and inspiring effect. I really enjoyed my conversation with Patty Townsend, and I have a feeling you will too. Hi, Patty Townsend. Thank you so much for joining me on the Weeks Well. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's nice to make your connection. I've heard about you for years, of course, and our email exchange, like many that I've had when I extend an invitation to come on the show, went really deep, really quickly <laughs> about the subject of lineage and what it is, um, why or whether it matters, and what specifically we might want to clarify about it. Because there were a couple things you said in our exchange, and let's just start there. What, in your mind does need clarifying about yoga lineage in modernity? Big, big overarching question. Um, 
Well, let's start with my own. Uh, what I can share best is my own process of inquiry over the years of being exposed to you know, the draw of so many lineages. Oh, you should do this. And oh, you should do this and that kind of thing. Um, so what I think needs clarifying at this point is whether or not in yoga, we want to accept, there's a, a basic, the basic concept of Purusha and Prakriti, the purity and the nature and generally the inclination that we want to get to the pure and that the, the life experience is full of obstacles and problems and issues and you'll get too caught in it so you need to just get out of it, right? In order to basically rise up through the Sushumna channel, through the chakras, through whatever it is, via your own purification methods, right? That are, you know, very carefully delineated, certainly in Hatha yoga. Hatha yoga is what most people are, are practicing, you know, postures. And, mm-hmm. Although I would question whether or not they're really practicing Hatha yoga even, but they're doing a yeah. lot of postures, right? Um, so in that, in that process, and then again, in most of the, the translations of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, most of them will, will continue to present the idea that one needs to purify. And I bought into that for many, many years. In fact, back in the day when I was practicing, you know, lots and lots of advanced postures and all of that. In my mind, it was now as I look at it, I was still very much under the sway of this hierarchical view of yoga, which is you're going to get better. You're going to get out of all the pain, get out of all the pain. Well, getting out of pain sounds good, but is that really what's going on? So if we go back to Purusha and Prakriti as the two, we could say, just a very simplification, um, that they come together, that they combust, and all of manifestation is formed. Now, whether one wants to say that's a system of duality, there's Purusha, there's Prakriti, or one wants to say that by the time they get together, there's no point thinking about it as dual because you can't separate them. Mm-hmm. Not as long as you're in form. So where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves in form. And we also, I think, have found ourselves in the yogic tradition with a real aversion to form, a real aversion to nature. We want to clean it up, right? We want to clean it up inside ourselves so that we can notice the truth. Question is, which is the truth? The empty radiance or is the truth, the radiance manifesting through nature who has been so maligned, yogically, so maligned to be less than hierarchy, Above is Purusha, below is Prakriti, making all kinds of trouble, right? Um, So 
in terms of the, the view, what I began to realize, and not really fully until I met my um, teacher that I started working with 20 years ago now, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, it wasn't really until I met her and saw the embodiment of something I had never seen before that I began to put all of this into the um, the umbrella of what I had studied over so many years in yoga, specifically in philosophy, um, to realize that, wow, it's very possible that I, along with many others, have been sold to a bill of goods on this. <laughs> you know, the idea that something, i.e., if we're talking lineage, some person is better in some way, is antithetical to the idea that nature and pure awareness, Purusha and Prakriti, have come together equally, and there's this. And this is messy. It's messy. So, so yes, it's messy. And yes, we still want to see life as it as it actually is. So what, what I began to, to think about and then to find reflected in um, tantric, more tantric style philosophies, that I'm not a scholar of anything. I'm a... I'm an inner inquirer, right? But in, in the systems that I was looking at, the tantric picture seemed to be much more acceptance, acceptant of the field of nature, right? Um, and I realized that the, the Shakti, right, wasn't less than the Shiva. There was no one without the other. And finally realized, and this was Bonnie, that um, when I say realized, I mean for myself, right? This is, this, is, this is my experience. I'm not saying this is the way anything is. What I realized was that uh, this messiness that I had had such an aversion to, and was practicing so hard and diligently to get over. And when, I'm, when I talk about practice, I'm not talking about this thing everybody talks about, you know, when I get on my mat. It's like, what are you doing the rest of the time, for God's sakes? You know, the mat? <laughs> it's the dishes. It's the four children I had. It's not the mat. <laughs> right? Um, so getting back, um, Bonnie pointed out in a very, very clear and beautiful manner how if she was very sick, she was just coming out of being very, very sick. She'd been housebound for years when I first met her. She taught a, a yoga workshop at Kripalu. I lived near Kripalu, so I went to it. And here was this woman as far as I was concerned, as fully realized as anyone I had ever seen, talking about how 
she embraces the pain and she embraces the complexity and the difficulty. And I saw a woman with less aversion to anything in life than I had ever seen. And I thought this is very, very fascinating. Hmm. She didn't call what she was doing yoga, but she was a great yogi, is, not was, is a great yogi. Mm-hmm. Um, developer of body mind centering. Yeah. The developer of body mind centering, yes. And uh, a good friend <clears throat> and a mentor for me over the last 20 years. And the friend part is critical because there's no hierarchical thinking in it. And in the early days, I was just like, oh my God, Bonnie, you know, this is the first devotional. Thing I had ever felt and I you know and she took my head in her hands and she said Patty no no it's not like that it's you and that wasn't me personally it was anybody whose head she took in their hands um uh is it okay if I keep going on about Bonnie here for a little bit? Yes, I have uh, a couple questions, but I want to know. Yeah, she becomes please. she becomes the heart of kind of this culminating practice. I'm, you know, I'm an elder now in the yoga community, so I there is a sense of of culmination going on, and she has been so very very critical in in uh, forming that, and and has never in my mind really contradicted any of the philosophical underpinnings of yoga that I had embraced over my life. It was just a different slant at the same thing. For example, she was in, um, she wanted to know more about yoga so she could go out in the world and and teach it, teach yoga teachers and so forth, uh, body mind centering in that form. Um, so she took my 200 hour yoga teacher training, which was pretty funny, you know, Bonnie sitting there with her notes and her lunch box, you know, listening. And at one point when, uh, I was teaching philosophy and I came to the, co- the uh, subject of samskara and I was talking about how these are the habitual patterns and that they keep us from seeing life as it is and that they block our our growth, which I was still, you know, feeling was a linear kind of up and out situation. Um, and I kept she kept she came up to me. So some scars are the patterns and of thinking and acting that we of which we are unaware but we continue to do and said to block our experience of of deepening, right? What did she say? She said, hey, I just don't understand this concept. And I'm just like, oh, well, let me tell you, you know, I'm explaining it in relationship to the koshas and the layers of consciousness and all this. She says, Patty, I just, you know, I disagree. And we left it at that. And I, I, it, I thought about it for about two years before I started to get what it was. It's the acceptance of that that frees you. It's the acceptance that it's a mess. It's hard. 
in, in the acceptance, we're not caught by it anymore. I find this to be yoga. If we're not caught by it, we can also see the rest of it, including the vastness. It's like the ocean. The ocean is vast and open and wide. And what are we going to do? Try to get all of the seaweed out of the ocean for the ocean to enjoy being itself? It makes no sense. Seaweed is part of it. The fact that you and I, that we all have these personal lives, sometimes joyful, sometimes very sorrowful. To me, this was became a huge breakthrough in uh, what is yoga practice. Did you feel that in your body? Were you able to map that into your body oh, well, like immediately? She is a master oh, yeah. of the body. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in a certain way, because I had done, you know, everything I thought I ever needed to do in asana, that was done. So part of me from that older school uh, thought, well, that's that's fine. I'm, I'm done with asana. Not only was I done with that, I was bored with it. I didn't want to do it anymore, but I wanted a deeper practice. This is, you know, again, Bonnie. So I thought that for a long time, I thought, well, I got all these tensions out of my body and those are reflected in my mind. So my mind is now supposed to be clearer. And yet, huh, not so much. Somewhat. There's a difference, but not so much. So in meeting Bonnie, what I'll just say very, very generally that, that her inquiry is directly into structure, every layer, body, body embodiment, every layer from the most dense to the most subtle, all the way into the energetic level, through you know cellular consciousness and and understanding what's going on there in the the movement of information from the inner wrapping of the cell and the outer wrapping of the cell and it's floating in its fluid environment and all of that so i'll just stay with that because that is where we went that's where she had been going where she has been going now for 60 years. So if you think of when she started this, you know, what is now so popular embodiment inquiry, um, if you try, you can't think 60 years back, but I can. And (laughs) almost. I almost, yeah, I can almost. (laughs) Uh, Right, right, right. Um, (laughs) To think that she was doing that was insane. And now, of course, 20 years ago, she started working on embryology. Now suddenly embryology is a big deal, right? Because of, you know, how we formed. Well, guess what? That's when the first prana flows come in. That's when, you know, if you want to have healthy movement, follow the prana. Because doing this and this and this and this and this is fun, but... It can override the natural flow of prana 
I was watching Angela on your on your uh, thing, and you know, yes, yes, <laughs> um, yeah. So at some point here, I can give a thumbnail sketch of my own journey in terms of teachers. Um, yeah, I'd like to do that. Um, and I wonder, I wanted, I want to stick with the prana thing for a moment because one of the things I, you know, I met with somebody yesterday who wanted to know about some aha moments that I have had in my yoga practice, which was, is a huge question. And there's too many for me to count. And I kind of trusted going into the conversation that the ones that um, were right for me to share were good for her to hear, good for me to say in that moment would, would come. I mean, I had a couple of ideas, but it's such a big question. And so I, continuing on as these things occur, I'm thinking about the aha moment when I realized that prana has no English counterpart as a word. I mean, we don't have one. It's oxygen's the closest maybe, breathing in, like the whole cycle of, I don't know, like I don't even think so because it's not oxygen. It's something so much more than that. So when I started thinking like, whoa, this one of these words that this practice I'm engaging in really anchors what I'm doing, then how do I figure that out? Well, I guess the only way I figure that out is by just interiorly like looking for it, you know, just sort of practicing and feeling it. So I just want to put that out there and float the idea of also the ocean analogy you were giving. I love the seaweed idea, but I was also wondering if samskaras are not as well. Like just say you're looking at the ocean, you're standing at the you know, on the sand somewhere on the beach. And your mind is looking at the rhythm of the waves and you start to think, right, it's high tide or it's low tide or your thinking rhythm. So your mind starts to just continuously like project these ideas that you have about rhythm, these ideas that you have about waves, about tides, about whatever, instead of observing one wave after the another, because every single wave is different. Every single one of them breaks at a different place in a different way. It curls, it foams, it whatever. Do you think that that's the right comparison between like some scars looking at the field of reality and just being Im immersed in the actual reality in front of you that you can't really predict. You don't really know what it is. And so do you think that's a good way of describing? I, li I like that description very much, very much. And, you know, I would, I would add to it because it got me thinking about the ocean, you know, the, the currents, that's the prana, the current that brings it along and is sometimes so gentle and other times, you know, right. That's so, a great analogy. Yeah. yeah. The waves become the expression of the underlying, and then also in relationship, because that's the other thing. It's a relational planet. Yeah, 
That's so great. And so, okay, so that's where Bonnie took you. And, you know, it's interesting. I didn't exactly expect that we would be kind of centering her as much. So I'm glad that we have. And I do want to go back to her because I also am thinking about you saying I'd never, ah, shoot, I I had it for a minute, but um, you'd never seen embodiment like that before? Yeah. Is that the yeah. word? You, yes, you, yeah. So you've never seen that before. So let's say that was 20 years ago. You were at, based on your bio at that point, you were 20 years into your practice, right? This is sort of, right? right. So maybe let's talk about that 20 years leading up to it because I, the audience that we have on Weeks Well is so interesting because Nearly every, well, I don't know for sure, but, you know, because I don't hear from everybody, but the people that I do hear from, and I know where a lot have come from, are pretty lineage embracing. Whatever lineage there is, they're kind of in it. Mm -hmm. They're very interested in learning about this interdisciplinary conversation, which is what, as I emailed you about, is most interesting to me. And especially now that I'm talking to you, I don't know, a couple years into this conversation, but a full year kind of into the podcast and the webinars that I did on this platform, it occurs to me that that intersectional moment that you had, that 20 years into your practice, whatever you'd been doing prior to that, and that Bonnie kind of, you know, blew out of the water or changed utterly or, you know, whatever, maybe overnight flipped a switch, I have no idea, I'd love to know more, is what a lot of people might be faced with more regularly now because of the way that media delivers these intersectional moments. Like you were sort of analog in front of Bonnie and you had that experience. And it was a more analog time, really. Nobody was scroll stopping at that time. Now they are. So I guess I'm asking a lot at once, but just 20 years in, what happened? And like, let's get to there. And then what advice could you give to people now who on a potentially much more regular basis are having these possible sort of pranic mind blows like you did with Bonnie? Well, first of all, I want to say that I think lineage is important. And I do consider myself to have a very strong lineage. But it's not a lineage of Iyengar or Patabi or my earliest teacher, Maharishi, or any of the other people that, that I explored. It is not at all linearly from them. And when I said that I think lineage needs a a kind of a a re-examination, what I mean is that this Purusha Prakriti dichotomy where nature is less than has been guiding our lineage conversation too. The lineage is Iyengar's. When when Angela said, wait, 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 I'm going to do this. Iyengar said, fine, you're out. You know, when, when I say to Bonnie, I'm doing this and this, she's like, oh, that's so interesting, right? 
there's very different. So, so what I'm looking at in terms of a reorganization of, of lineage, at least in the, what it means to me, I don't care what anyone else does. What it means to me is that it's coming from the field of nature and from the teachings. So my lineage comes through, first of all, this Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, because he you know, he's considered to be just a wah, 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 wah guy. You know, he was one of the most powerful teachers I ever had. And his was, it turns out, a very tantric uh, hmm. position on life. So that was the first thing. And when I would come into these other systems and look at them, I thought it was a fault, but I couldn't make a choice. Because every single time I'd say, yeah, that's really interesting. That's really great. But, you know, I can't agree, like with Iyengar, I can't agree that I'm not going to teach alternate mm. nostril breathing to beginners. Are you yeah. kidding me? Right. It can help them so very much. And that was a deal breaker for me with Iyengar. That was, it's like, I can't do that. Okay. Patabi, Patabi was, I was, I was not attracted to Patabi, but luckily I had learned the practice uh, earlier with some of his wonderful renegade kind of exciting teachers. And, uh, okay, so I guess I'm going into the I'm going into the timeline now, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so let me, I love it. Let me just back up a little bit because the timeline really does begin with Maharishi and then it's another, oh, it's a very long time, 15 years before I ever uh, started a really serious asana practice. And I started my serious asana practice in the late 70s at um, a place called the Center for Yoga in uh, Larchmont District of Los Angeles. And it was run by Ganga White, all right. And Anna Forrest. Whoa. I walked in there. I walked in there feeling crummy. You know, one of those aha moments, I suppose. Took a class and went out a dedicated practitioner, uh, now of asana, as well as my meditation, which was, was ongoing. Um, they were very, very powerful teachers. Anna was the most nurturant of, you know, I don't know what people think of Anna at this point, but she was just the most nurturant and loving uh, safety place. And Ganga was, was teaching that, well, this is kind of good. This has got philosophically, they'd both been to India. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, this guy was crazy. You got to hear the story about this guy and this guy. And Patabi heard him twice and that was enough. And Iyengar called Anna um, Ganga's girl. Anna had gone into an Iyengar class with a patch on her shorts that said question authority. Mm. So these were the people that, you know, that I was initially learning from. And it was great. Then came all of the Iyengar school starting to, you know, creep in. And the Iyengar convention was... The donut, the, not donut, but uh, Angela spoke about was in 1984 in, in San Francisco. And 
Angela was there. Victor was there. I had never met Victor before. I didn't, I didn't, he was new to the whole thing. But Angela was there teaching all of her beautiful wildness. And Donna Holloman, another spectacular uh, teacher still today, both of them still today, both very powerful influences on me, were brought up to the stage. And Angar was there. And they were asked to show something of these new things they were doing, right? I don't remember, maybe it was Victor who showed something, I don't know, but I do remember Dona because Dona came into a uh, headstand. And at that point, it had become popular with both Dona and Angela to do headstand with the legs slightly apart. This was crazy. This was crazy to the Iyengar people. They were just like, and Iyengar was up there and um, he was asked, asked by, I don't know, the moderator. Um, so what would you say to Dona? And, you know, I am not gonna, I can't vilify Iyengar. I, I see him as a, a very, very talented sweetheart. And when he spoke about Dona, he said, she will learn. And it was so sweet. Mm. <laughs> and I never forgot that. Mm. Right? So there was so much to learn from that lineage. Although, uh, and I did practice it, continue practicing it, you know, with some of the primary teachers of that time. Kofi, Busia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one more, one more short story about the convention with Kofi. So the same convention, um, you know, the different teachers were giving different classes and Kofi was teaching class and I was there um, and we were all in Sarvangasana and we had been for a very long time, yeah, right? right? Because those were yeah. the days. Yeah. Um, and Iyengar came in with his retinue of people you know, and all of his robes, and he came in and Kofi stopped, right? And Iyengar proceeded to literally rip Kofi apart. And I was devastated because that was one of the most beautiful classes I had ever attended until that point. That's how good it was. It was one of those. And Iyengar came in and said, first comment was, you call that trikonasana? You call that sarvangasana? And everyone was just like, oh, right? And in the same time, in terms of this not making decisions, which I think was very useful because I was studying seriously, um, I saw his feet because he was standing right next to me. And I have never and still have never seen such gloriously beautiful feet. And that meant something to me. I have to tell you, when I was in my early training days, I took classes from people based on their feet. <laughs> I'm serious. If I really was so engrossed in their feet mm -hmm. and I felt like looking at them 
taught me things that I couldn't quite put into words, but of course would be listening to their instructions and looking at their feet. It, it I, I mean, I probably studied for, I don't know how many years, five or 10 years that way. I That's swear to very, you. So I totally understand what yeah, you're saying, yeah. 100%. And yeah. I would love to have been able to take in because I ain't feet like that. I understand totally what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So, and you can, you understand obviously what an impression that made. And I never took a class personally from Iyengar. I actually had no interest in doing so, but I loved him. Yeah, well, not after that dress down. I mean, I can't, I'm thinking a lot about the embodied experience of being so deeply, to use the word again, engrossed in an experience, experience of sovereign gas. And again, I I may be projecting, but in fact, I'm just thinking about this, this conversation I had yesterday. I, 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 this is probably heretical to say, but I go into Shirshasan and Sarvangasan to think. I know that my mind, my brain <laughs> is very soothed, you know, in, in, in Shirshasana. And so the longer I stay, the better it is for me, because of course you can't really, you can't, it's not like I'm doing a checklist. I'm just observing my mind. It's just a different way. And Sarvangasan, I feel like I, observe my heart. I mean, I just think that's, to me, that's the essence of the two poses, you know, in a, in a, in a trite kind of nutshell. But if you all were in Sarvangasan over a 10, 15, whatever minute period, and Mr. Iyengar comes in and starts yelling at the teacher, that must've been traumatizing for you. No? Oh, no, I I wasn't traumatized. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, No, I I was concerned for Kofi. Yeah, so and I was, you know, I was a little sorry that the class got interrupted, but I was, and yeah. I was shocked at the. Yeah. Um, the but it didn't take away from your pose. You, you, you were, you didn't, you weren't having this. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe my mind is going to codependence. You know, where I would want to take care of the teacher, or help like the teacher not feel so bad. But I can't imagine it didn't really change your pose. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, I'm sure it changed my pose, but that didn't really matter. I was much more interested in the dynamic of what was actually yeah going on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, can I disagreed that. with Iyengar inside yeah. myself. I said, "No, yeah. Trikonas says. I mean, Trikonas. I keep saying it." Sarvanga says pretty good, pretty good right now. <laughs> you know, okay. Um, so anyway, that's so cool. Okay. So there, that was that. That was that about the other thing at the at the convention that I found so interesting and was really helpful for me. But you know, every step of the way, I I never got information about these people who were who were helpful for my a path. I didn't get information about them that made me throw them out with the bathwater or their teachings out with the bathwater. Um, yeah, so... So that's a question, so as we keep going, because maybe this will help kind of get us to the interaction with Bonnie and your eventual decision, I don't know when, the, to do embody yoga. When did you, can you tell me when you, did you start embody, is that how you say it? Embody, I, I, kept, I was like, is it embody yoga, embody yoga? It's so, embody it's such yoga. a great, embody embody, yoga. it's such a nice yeah. name. When did you start that? Um, I started that right after I, uh, I started training with Bonnie. Okay. And to 20 years ago. It was one of those things where 
<laughs> I was throwing everything out I had ever learned. And I lost so many, so many students, which was fine with me. I really didn't care that it was so clear to me that th this was my dharmic path, right? I lost so many students, and uh, but I was having so much fun with the depth of the inquiry. And uh, yeah, anyway, I was having so much fun. But before Bonnie, I just want to fill in the little, little bit of a blank in there. Before Bonnie, you know, in terms of timeline, um, the next thing was Patabi. And Patabi came. So this, this is the way again of, yes, this, but not really that, you know, so... Patabi came to the yoga center in Los Angeles, invited by Ganga, and he taught a class. We were very, very strong practitioners already. So this was 1985. We were very strong practitioners. He was going to take, do a little bit, you know, some suryas, et cetera. And he ended up doing the full primary series with us. So it was, of course, very long because when Patabi was first teaching, it was inhale, or one, whatever he said. He didn't want you to breathe yet. And, right? So that, and I'm not, I'm not overdoing it. That was what was going on. And it was very powerful. But I was five and a half months pregnant. And one of those things where you say, oh, this can't be right. Um, the <laughs> this cannot be right. The Tavi came around. I was in Marichyasana four. So that's the one where you're Padmasana here, you're here, and then you go around here, reach all the way around and hold. You can look it up if you're not sure. Which no, we can is. we can put it in the show notes. It's no joke of a pose. It's mm. insane yeah. for a pregnant woman. Insane. So my teacher, Ganga, is he's in the line on the other side. So Patavi gets me all the way turned around and I'm holding and now he's trying to, you know, do whatever. I look over my shoulder and I see Ganga and Ganga is mouthing to me. It's crazy. I thought it was too late. <laughs> no, no, not too late. Everything was fine. Yeah. And I came around. I was just like, oh, OK, it all feels OK. But yeah, he must be crazy. So I asked him the next day, I, I asked him um, a specific question about pregnancy because I was practicing. I was a fairly new practitioner. I've been practicing just a few months and uh, I asked him, so, you know, I'm very tired in, in my pregnancy. I'm very fatigued. And Patabi said, just keep practicing. I said, well, it feels like maybe I want to rest. No, 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 no. We, we pushed through, you know, and, you know, part of me wanted to say, yeah, okay, I can do that. But the other part of me said, he doesn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Can't know. Why is he saying, right? So there's that. And then, and then comes Yoga Works, which was Yoga Works. <laughs> and... And it was a great works. innovation. I mean, it was. A, oh, 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 it was so good. Idea. It was yeah. so good. And it was so, so good for a short time. Yep. Yep. Um, exactly. But then there it was. And we were like this, you know, 
hovel of a groove, like, what can we do? And Chuck brought uh, Richard to Yoga Works. Hatabi had been there a couple times. I didn't even take the class. Freeman, right? But Richard Freeman? Richard Freeman. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Richard becomes one of the, I would say if I had three teachers of asana, it would, if I had only three, it would be Anna, Richard, and Bonnie. Um, Richard came in that room and, you know, you know, Richard, he's like, Amazing. <laughs> He's all all space is the way I yes. look at him. It's so true. And, yeah. And he came in and instead of just the numbers and the practice, he was teaching us primary series the first time. He began in Tadasana with such poetry that he was speaking. He wasn't reciting a poem. He was bringing us into a practice that I had been so hungry for, a practice that had the, you know, the richness of yoga, not just the movement or the alignment or something like that. And I went up to Richard after that class and I said, and this was in 19, probably it had to be, 87 or 88. And I said, this is it. This is the new yoga. This is what is going to happen. And, you know, he just kind of laughed. And, uh, and I felt that very, I mean, I knew that was true. I knew it was coming. Of course, it took another 20 years. <laughs> to really you know, get out there in the world. And by the time yoga did get so far out there in the world, we got to scroll, scroll and stop. Is that what you call it? Scroll I call stop. it scroll stop, but I make stuff up every day, you know. <laughs> I like it. I like scroll stop. Because it is. Um, You're just like thumb, thumb, stop. Thumb, thumb, stop. Mm-hmm. Thumb. I feel bad. I'm going to feel worse. I feel, oh, oh, I feel, uh. And then you just, you have these guttural responses through this thing that has evolved us so far on the planet. And yet we use it and our front brain and our rhomboids to slouch over like the animals yeah. we've emerged from. It, it, it blows my mind, actually. Yeah. That it's yeah. like it's so stressful to be alive and so stressful to evolve. I feel like subconsciously we consent. I, I mean, I'm a big into this consent thing, like... There's a there's a writer. Oh gosh, I'll put it in the show notes. But she's been on Ezra Klein a bunch, and I've just read her recently um, quoted in another kind of a millennial kind of a woman at the New Yorker named Gia Tolentino. I've mentioned her twice now in some recent podcasts, and she mentions this woman. Oh, I can't remember what, but she this woman, both of them uh, have kind of quoted her, brought her on to talk to them. Talks about the just the um, how. We are at the precipice of not understanding what we are allowing to happen to us. So I guess I'm trying to say we're like consenting to these innovations, consenting to these circumstances, but part of me feels like we're just being like drugged or lulled into this slump, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. necessarily means that we're so much less 
present, but I digress. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's very interesting. And it, um, you know, before the scrolling culture, before the scrolling culture, we were already uh, culturally addicted to self-fragmentation. We were already, it's like this and this, I'm thinking, you know, billboards. I'm thinking television, commercials. I'm thinking um, this aspect of me. I'm a blah, 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 and I'm a da, 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 and a da, 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 and a da, da, da. But this identification with the fragments, hmm. right? So this, to me, this whole thing is just an increase of that same. It began earlier. This is not a brand new phenomenon. It's a... It's a, a trap that is even more so now. And what's interesting is that the trap of that is happening through a field, a unified field, right? So that's such a dichotomy to me because there is this unified field. You know, I'm talking to you, you're in, you're in Denver, right? It, but... And yet we are very, very seriously fragmented. And then that takes me into how we embody ourselves as fragments and how addicted we are to thinking of ourselves as fragments and how even the processes of yoga where um, they, they fragmented us more was my experience. Although it's wonderful to know and to learn all these different alignment principles that were and are taught, mm -hmm. right? Without, and maybe that's the way we get in. Maybe we do go through the external. And if we are continuing to inquire deeply, we will get to a more unified place. But, but thinking of this and this, is not the same thing as a movement of prana that is coming from my core, which has a directional flow to the rotation. Oh my gosh, totally. Instead of, I'm going to do pinchamayarasana, I'm coming out, and I'm going to roll, and I'm going to walk in, I'm going to lift my tail, I'm going to, you know. Can I ask a question about that? Or, or do you want to keep going? No, I'm good. Okay, it's like a student question, really. Like, so directional flow. So, what's the point? I think about this all the time. What's the point of the shapes? Is it is it to? What's the point of the shapes? In in the context yeah, I, of prana, you know, I ask myself that all the time too, and I explore. I explore now from the inside to find the. Where's the, I mean, the arm's going to go out. It's going to be trikonasana. It's going to get out there. But if it goes out like this, well, I'm still fragmented. I am not actually unified with anything. But if I can get in with the prana flow and find the way that in this case, I'm not doing something I know how to do. I'm just doing what is, what is showing up right now. If I go. Mm-hmm. So trikonasana, I, I still can't help figure out how to do a posture and keep the prana flow 
if I don't at least have micro movement inside. Totally. Right. I call it micro flow. I think like the flow micro yoga flow. thing, micro exactly. flow, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So is that, so there, I, I want to pin something really quick and then ask you about these three pillars of embodied yoga. And so um, Abhijata Iyengar just came uh, to the States to do, for a convention. So she led a convention out in San Diego and, you know, five days or whatever it is and. <laughs> working parent that I am, I logged in and tried to take a couple of sessions live, but it's such a huge commitment. It was the last week of school. I was like, forget. I so I'm like just crawling my way through the recordings. I mean, I'm like, well, I've got 30 minutes. I'll just rewind, you know, what she said, the last good thing. And like, so I'm taking these, um, sessions in these weird concentric kind of overlapping events in my own, uh, mind and I'm like in my own lived experience really so part of me thinks I should write about that and just like this live thing that occurred that everybody kind of like just gobbled down because she's an excellent teacher 20 years she studied under her grandfather for 15 years before he then died and devoted her academic studies to kinesiology and biomechanics and stuff. So she's really got, she's packed in there and she's a millennial. She's late thirties and I think has a lot of ideas about the way she'd like to see the Iyengar method evolve. But she, one of her main concepts in the very beginning was you think about moving to something you're moving, but what about moving from Go to from, you know, movement. So it just makes me think of what you were just describing, that she was, I do think the Iyengar method has become very rigid in the wake of Mr. Iyengar's passing. I think that the way uh, certification occurs and training occurs, you know, I was belatedly an Iyengar yoga teacher. I was 16 years of teaching and then decided to get certified. And the, I'm so glad I am one. I'm so I'm eternally grateful for my apprenticeship experience with John Schumacher. I mean, I I feel nothing but gratitude for all that I've learned, but the rigidity inside of the system as the deputies keep trying to execute sort of the method is interesting to me because I feel like the chi, if I may cross you know borders here, mm-hmm. I just feel like the energy is. Um, it's locked. It's stuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to to go on, but this her her, her whole teaching was source the wh- where are you moving from? You know what about moving from to a thing instead of to a thing instead of the goal instead of get to the shape? You know, right? So. And then you know just to add to that because it, it it nothing actually goes in one direction. So where are you moving from? And then what is coming back? It doesn't mean you come back all the way back, but it's that. And you can see it can become still. And when when we practice that way, and then we become still from there, it's very interestingly different from coming from finding a position and and stay still, stay still, don't right. move, you know. Right. 
Right. Like hold it against all odds or just hold it until you're fatigued or hold it until the mind tells you to leave it kind of a thing, which is right, right, common right. in the Or the, the mind tells you to leave it. I know. And, and I don't, and, and that I, doesn't have a good rep. <laughs> I know. And I don't, I don't mean to get too far down the anger rabbit hole because I do want to pull into, you know, how you found it in body yoga and what it is and what you're doing now you know, in the context of how you were saying that the lineages, the concept have been more or less the same. Did I understand that correctly? And and from the email, our email exchange. And, and, and is that what you mean when you talk about how you were able to take this wisdom from Patabi Joyce, but also recognize that as a whatever he was, man, he wasn't going to be able to. Well, I want to just say that that I probably wouldn't have taken wisdom directly from Patabi, but I was willing to take it from Richard. I got it. I understand. I see. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. And Richard, I mean, there's so much wisdom to take from him, seems to me. <laughs> yeah, so, so, cool. you, so you have these three teachers. You have Anna, you said, right? Yep. And Bonnie and Richard. Yes, and then there's also Angela, who was early, you know, very early in the feminization of yoga. Um, Bonnie, of course, was somewhere else doing her work at the same time, but I was with Angela. That was very, very powerful for me. And I will say that Donna Holloman was also powerful for me during that time. The, you know, two real keepers of the of the feminine aspect. And then my primary teacher for 10 years was Anna Forrest. I did not know that. That is so cool. Uh, yeah. You know, it's great. I, I was pregnant five and a half months, by the way, and uh, forced my husband to travel through the back roads of Italy to go meet Donna and take a class with her. Oh, good for her. you. Yeah. How wonderful. <laughs> I know. How wonderful. It was amazing. It was, yeah, it was amazing to be in her presence. Yeah. So, on a forest for 10 years. So that must have informed, um, I don't know if you had started in body yoga at that time, but I love these three pillars, you know, the embodied. Oh, I, had not, I didn't start in body yoga until, you know, 2000. Anna was wow. like Before. 78 88. Oh, early on a forest. Oh, very wow. early on a, yeah, very early. So anyway, but in body yoga became... Oh, there, there was a very clear reason that I started in body yoga. Um, not at all, genuinely not at all for myself, but because I adored Bonnie and because I continue to think that this, this is advanced yoga, this is the under pinning of this is the nature meditating on itself right rather than trying to get out because i felt the power of it to be so intense i decided that i would um do everything i could to make her work more available and because i'm a yoga teacher and i also thought that her work needed a form it was just too formless for most people it's like what how do you practice this and I realized people like yoga I like yoga we can do this in yoga and I'm, I'm gonna do it and I was hoping to be able to help Bonnie's work be spread more through yoga so that's why I did it 
and uh, it was it's 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 been a wonderful wonderful process. It's so, I love it. It's yeah, and you and the Embody Yoga, based on what you are describing, is the perfect name. It's perfect. I think so. Yeah, it it really is. It's unfortunate that everybody uses Embody and somatics and all of that stuff now. I do think that, um, you know, somatics is about the body. I get that. But somatic yoga is not just about being in yoga postures. It's got to be about the whole thing. It's the whole thing. It's the, the inquiry into consciousness, the inquiry into consciousness and form. So that's why it's embody yoga in this case, instead of just embody something. Yeah, I want to actually, there's two like lingering questions and I want to be respectful of your time. And I also, these last conversations I've had, I've gotten so, they're so great and they wind up going long and I hope the audience doesn't mind that they're over an hour. I hope you don't. Um, We're almost there. Okay. (laughs) Because there are two questions. One is really specific about that exchange or that understanding you had with Richard, which is this is where it's going. Was it the flow? Is that what you meant? The movement, the sort of, what was it specifically that you saw we were headed toward? It, it was the, the blending of the clarity of a kind of a sweet alignment that wasn't overdone, but was just so, right? And, and the poetry and the philosophical knowledge that was really lacking everywhere at that point. In the 70s? In the... 80s. This was in the 80s. In the 80s. What do you mean by that? Philosophical, like, lacking? Is this the decade you're addressing? You know, everybody was into the physical. It was all all physical. All physical. Uh... Richard was clearly not all physical. He, he clearly was using the practice as part of the, the weave of his powerful inquiry and dedication. And I did see the same thing in Bonnie, in just a different form. And so you've been this like body holder, you know, this like, I was going to say space holder, but they're kind of space holders for your body exploration. It seems to me body consciousness, pranic exploration back to the, Mm -hmm. back to the name of your, of your school basically. And that I guess is my kind of last question, I guess, which is your embody yoga and what you're doing for me anyway, you've described so well. I really have a good picture of what I think you're after in your classes. And of course, I've spent time on your site and um, and, and and read there. So taking a little maybe more time than the average, you know, sort of Jane or something. But is it these threads of learning that you filtered through your own consciousness and body that have emerged into these three pillars, the embodied inquiry, the Santosha and the Viveka. Is that accurate? Yeah. 
you know, when you're presenting things, you want to give a few simple ways to enter the work. <laughs> so I, I wanted to hone it down for myself into these three tools that one pretty much need needs in my mind um, to really seriously inquire. So because of the nature of what I'm doing, it's an embodied inquiry. I mean, everybody inquires, you meditate, whatever, whatever you med- I hope you meditate, right. <laughs> you so. meditate and you meditate in action in what is this? That's embodied inquiry. What does this feel like? Do I actually have a hand? Hand, what? Does it have its own consciousness? So that's the embodied inquiry, right? And then the next one, Santosha, is, well, it's most commonly uh, translated as contentment, of course. And to me, in, in practicality, Santosha becomes self-acceptance, radical, total self-acceptance, without judgment about it, and without inferring non-action. You can do something about it. Doesn't mean that you have to stay a jerk. You know, if that's what you find, you say, oh my God, I can't believe I did this and this and this. And, you know, and then you get caught in the aversion to, oh God, I've got to stop thinking about that because that's ruining my life and my meditation. And, you know, aversion, that's that's when you're really locked. So the santosha is the process of opening the doors for God's sakes. Yeah. Right. They open the doors because you're not so involved in the aversion to yourself, which right? takes so much effort. And yeah, it takes so much effort. It it's, it takes it takes practice, and that's where lineage is important. Because if you're not practicing, you can forget about saying, "Oh yeah, I practice in the in the." I was just going to say something nasty. I won't. <laughs> I practice in thus and thus lineage. It's like seriously. How much time have you spent thinking about that before you decide that you practice in that lineage? Do you know anything about that lineage? Right? Is it what makes it a lineage to you? You should be able to answer these questions, I, I think, in my humble opinion, not so humble all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's the last one? Oh, Viveka. Viveka, the discerning, the sword of discrimination. Why? Because you are bound to try to fool yourself. Bound. You'll get in there and you'll think something. And you'll come out and you say, well, it's because I this and this. It's like, no, you need to inquire more deeply. What is it? And rather than coming out saying, well, now I'm whatever. I'm this kind of good good thing, and maybe you are, but then you still need to look in more deeply, and that's the Viveka. You know, it occurs to me for the first time in all of these conversations that one of the things, and I'm reducing, I really am, but one of the things that the feminization of yoga has done 
is to give us collectively an embodied experience of the truth of these words. Like, you know discrimination in your own embodied experience when it happens. You might not be able to talk about it later really profoundly, prolifically, or any other way, because it's difficult to put the recognition of that thing as it is occurring in the moment into words, but you still know it and you know that truth. And so hearing you describe it from the very beginning, the Prakriti Purusha, you know, paradigm and that sort of layering in the sort of umbrella-ing of Tantra, which, you know, Doug Keller has come on to talk to me twice about, essentially, which is just fascinating. Because he talks a lot about how the Tantric angle, (laughs) the Tantric addition, you know, I'm not sure what the word is there, of or in modern yoga practice really helps that hermetic, inward-looking, remove yourself from the world because Prakriti is messy, because nature is always creeping in. You've got to turn in and find your own perfect self, your own Purusha inside and sort of making, you know, dual and sort of paradigmatic, one being good and one being bad, one go to, one move away from, one control, the other one set free. You know, there's, seems to me. And so... At the same time, your experience of discernment or santosha, like inside yourself, for example, is going to, maybe it's going to be the same as what I experienced. Maybe it isn't, but you know it inside yourself and I know it inside myself. And maybe that's where we're intersecting. Maybe that's where lineage blooms Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I like that. I like that idea. I like the I like the uh the inquiry going out in directions and then you keep that inquiry up and you know this one direction becomes very clear for a while, another direction very clear and what happens is we start to learn we start to experience the space of consciousness through which all of these thoughts and feelings are are coming. And and then in that case, one is getting much more in my mind into the what what we have referred to uh, as the feminization of yoga, this the inclusion of the strands, whether they're painful or they're joyful, they're going to be both. We know that. It's always changing. That ocean doesn't start moving, stop moving. <laughs> the currents, you know, and and that's what we live in. And we live in this big ocean. And we also live in this, like, I live in this patty ocean and you live in the Kim. And, and, so, and so it is. Can you hold it? Is it enough? You know, how... Uh, I think I think it's a brave act to say, okay, yeah, I can deal with it. Bring it on. Yeah. I'll do my best. Yeah, it's more bravery than I often feel that I have. But I understand exactly what you're saying. You try, you know, but I think bravery might change and courage might change over time. 
I was in Germany so many years ago in my late teens and my host mom, I was learning German in Berlin and she was like, you know, she said, speaking in German, you have so much Mut, which is German for courage. And I was like, what's that? You know, I didn't know the word. And so I had to learn the word in German and like, you know, move it back into English, courage. And all my life I've thought, oh, I have so much courage because I was told that early and maybe I do and maybe that's my narrative. But then, then there's times, like for example now, where I don't know if I have any or much, you know, like it changes. It just, you have to define it differently, I guess. Yeah. And it, and it's going to change again. Right. And, and the more you allow that, that space on the two ends, the more courage you're going to have because there's courage in accepting. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I, I didn't do this right. Oh dear. What now? Yeah. Well, Patty, in the interest of time, because this is just, I could go on and on. It's so interesting to talk to you and we'll have your links, you know, in the show notes so people will come yeah. find you. Is there anything last you want to share, you know, live that people can't otherwise find in the show notes or might want to hear from you about what you're going to do in these next, who knows how much time? Oh, I, I'm planning to just continue to, you know, to inquire, to go deeper, to play with it, to offer and receive, um, be alive, practice my dharma, which is this, and also to enjoy and uh, discover the real gifts of being older. The, the gifts, there is something to this expanding of awareness that I am very glad to know is here. And I want to encourage others, especially women, to know that it is okay. In fact, it's good. In fact, it's really good. As long as we don't have too much aversion, some aspect of it. Right. Right. But to, so I think that's part of uh, what I'd like to do over the next few years. That's amazing. I am so glad to have met your acquaintance and had had this conversation and to add your thoughts um, and your whole lived experience to this conversation of you know, practicing well, which was the name of this podcast initially. And as Beryl Bender and I discussed several weeks ago, maybe practice is the lineage. Maybe that's just practice. Maybe that's the lineage. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But I just want to thank you so much for being here and for adding your, your whole lived experience to the mix. I am very grateful that you asked me. I love to be able to share this. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me and features original music from my former band, Governess. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, on weekswell.com and have a newsletter. And we're also now most recently on Substack, exploring in as many media as we can the conversation, practice, and community of being your best self. If you have any ideas on the Weeks Well about guests, about feedback on the show, anything you'd like to know or talk about or dialogue about, 
hit us up at hello at weekswell.com. We love the feedback. We love the conversation. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of The Week's Well, featuring another new guest talking about how to be your best self. See you next time. Bye.